Welcome to City of Books, a podcast for people who think that a room without books is strangely empty. I'm your host, Martina Devlin. City of Books is funded by Dublin UNESCO City of Literature and supported by our bookish friends at the Museum of Literature Ireland, Molly. Today we're talking to two authors, Catherine Dunn and Leah Mills. Both Catherine and Leah have had two thought-provoking novels reissued by Arlen House as part of the publisher's classic literature series. Catherine's is a name for himself and Leah's is another Alice. Leah Mills writes novels, short stories, literary essays and memoir. Her novel, Fallen, was the Belfast, Dublin, Two Cities, One Book choice for 2016. Catherine Dunn has written 11 novels and one book of non-fiction. The novels range from The Things We Know Now to The Years That Followed. She received the Irish Pen Award for Outstanding Contribution to Irish Literature in 2018. And last year, she was decorated as Cavalieri Stella d'Italia. I hope you got a wonderfully blinging medal, Catherine. <laughs> I did. I got a very pretty medal, Martina. Thank you. <laughs> Someday we must persuade you to do a public in-conversation wearing it, ribbons and all. <laughs> so these books were regarded as very important in their day and their themes about various kinds of violence against women are certainly still relevant. So I'm wondering why they were reissued. Had they vanished down a crack or was it necessary to remind a new generation about them? Leah, I'll start with you. Well, in the case of Another Alice, it had gone out of print. Um, it did very well when it first came out and got a lot of attention. But the way the book industry has changed over the last 20 years or so means that books, a lot of books really have a very short shelf life. And so... By early 2000, it had already gone out of print and was completely unavailable. Um, and so when Arlen House were running their classic literature series and uh, reprinting titles by women going back throughout the 20th century, it seemed like a good idea to include even books as recent as Another Alice and A Name for Himself. When was it first published? 1996. You'd imagine Ireland had changed a great deal since then, but perhaps not. Well, I think in many ways Ireland has changed out of all recognition. But in matters of violence against women, not so much. I think the nature of our understanding of violence against women has changed. In the mid-90s, it seemed to come as a terrible surprise to people that sexual violence even existed. It was something that was just never spoken about, never discussed, never acknowledged, never recognized, and often, unfortunately, just not dealt with. Now, we have had a lot of positive change, thanks to the work of the Rape Crisis Network and Women's Aid and Ruhama and One in Four, who offer support services for people who have experienced sexual abuse in their lifetime. There has been legislation, uh, a lot of legislative changes that have improved the situation of women. Although we have the language now, and although we recognise the nature of sexual crime, it's still happening. Now, I should have said that Another Alice is about a childhood that's poisoned by sexual abuse, and your character has to try and find her way out of that, try and reclaim herself. Would that be a fair assessment? 
Yes, I think the main the main focus of Another Alice is it's a story of recovery of one woman from the experience of sexual abuse in childhood. Part of that recovery is about, first of all, being able to recognize and name the things that happened to her, because in her experience as a child, everything was denied. Blame was attributed to her. Part of Alice's story and the reason that she goes looking for help in the first place is that when she becomes a mother, she doesn't know how to do it. She doesn't know how to relate to her small daughter in a loving way. And, and she's actually quite a dangerous, volatile mother. And she recognises that. Um, and so she goes looking for help. And in doing so, she breaks the cycle of abuse. You said something interesting there that I'd like to pick up with Catherine, that she didn't have the name for what had happened to her as a little girl. And Catherine, when a name for himself first came out, we didn't have a name for what's happening in this novel. It's about coercive control. So talk to us about why the book was reissued and this theme that you came up with. We all know about coercive control now, but back in 1998, was it? Uh, mm -hmm. The term wasn't commonplace. No, it wasn't. And I remember, um, I, I can actually remember the very moment when the novel was born, when I was reading a newspaper report about a, a murder suicide. And I remember being shocked by the way in which those two words had been yoked together as though, you know, the two victims were, or that the two people were equally victims. And of course they weren't because the murderer had a choice. The woman that he happened to kill did not have that choice. And it stayed, it haunted me. It just stayed with me for a long time. And I thought, I really want to understand what would actually make somebody do that to somebody, to a woman that they claimed to love. So what was their definition of love? What kind of thwarted understanding of loving did they have that confused it with complete control and ownership. And I didn't have the phrase coercive control then either. I mean, we're talking about over 25 years ago. But, you know, I'd lived a little bit at that stage and I had seen around what we would describe as the kind of relationships that made us uncomfortable. Now we would use the word controlling. But back then it was a sort of a almost a tacit understanding of no, she can't do that because her husband doesn't like it if she does that. So, you know, there was I was aware that there was um, a lot of relationships around me, some of which I could see were more women were more restricted in some than they were in others. So it became this kind of just an imaginative journey of why would somebody define love as ownership? I wanted to, I wanted to draw on all of the sorts of experience that I'd had to date, one of them as a teacher, uh, where I became very aware throughout my career of the disadvantages that people who lived in an area which wasn't regarded as respectable, the kind of barriers that were put up for them. They might have been, students might have been bright and dedicated, but their address went against them whenever they wanted to apply, say, for a course or even a part-time job, whatever it was. And I think my almost 20 years in a disadvantaged area gave me the sort of understanding of class barriers in Ireland that I, I'd never had before. And, and, and so that understanding, when I, when I began to imagine the character of Vinnie, I wanted him to be somebody who had been deprived 
from childhood so that being with somebody from a different class was something that was very desirable, almost necessary for his own survival. And then the story took off from there. I didn't in any way want to imply that a deprived background actually meant that somebody would behave like this in their later life. But I just wanted to explore all of the barriers that this boy, as he was then, had to overcome before he felt he had a place of belonging anywhere. The, the reissuing of it then, because our, our as Leah says, we've, we've acquired the language over the last number of years to talk about coercive control or talk about abusive or controlling relationships. So yes, it seemed like a good idea that this would fit into something which perhaps had spoken of this before it became common currency. And also because one of the things which really shocked me, but probably didn't surprise me, was during the pandemic, the, the shadow pandemic was the pandemic of violence against women. And not just in Ireland, it was it's worldwide that at the same time as the uh, virus, if you like, of COVID was doing the rounds, the virus of violence against women, and, you know, to call it domestic violence is almost to kind of soften it. It's, it's violence against women, that that was something which was raging its way around the world in equal proportion. Uh, women's organisations and also to men's organisations because of partner abuse was yet another pandemic. So it just seemed to be timely for all those reasons. And why tell it as fiction? I think because we can actually understand something more viscerally when we read it as fiction or see it as a film. A newspaper report can tell you the facts of the case, but I think paradoxically, fiction actually gets to the truth of the case. And I think fiction allows us to go into all of those kind of dark corners and explore them in a way that people, when they're reading, understand the emotional truth of what we're talking about as novelists. I remember somebody saying that a good novel is actually neurologically the closest that we can get to actually being present in a situation. And that has always fascinated me. So that, you know, that, that has always appealed to me. I think we use stories as a way of defining ourselves, as a way of understanding what makes us take and what makes other people take. Leah? I absolutely agree with everything that Catherine said there. Um, the origins of Another Alice, in fact, were that it was in, in 1992, uh, which was the year of the X case and a number of really high profile murder and rape cases in Ireland, in the UK, across the world, there were rape camps in Bosnia. It was an absolutely toxic time to be a woman. But because of the rape case and because attitudes to Ireland were so inflamed by anything related to abortion, the airwaves were just full of opinion and invective and accusation and counter accusation. And absolutely nobody was really listening to what anybody else was saying. And it occurred to me then that the voice of a complainant could not be heard in the middle of all of that white noise. And nobody could hear what anybody else was saying. Nobody wanted to hear what anybody else was saying. But that if it was told as fiction, people would pay attention differently and maybe be able to hear and experience some of what the character was experiencing because Fiction can change us in that way. It's, it's an education in empathy, in 
setting aside what you think you know and experiencing what another person experiences. Talking of changing understanding, have your attitudes changed to these books at all in the intervening decades since they were first published? How do you feel about the book? Well, I went back to it with a huge amount of trepidation <laughs> because, you know, you learn as you go along. And I think as writers, we always try to raise the bar higher with each piece of fiction that we that we write. And it was your second book, wasn't it? It, it was my second book. And it was also, you know, I when I was writing it, I knew I definitely didn't want to do anything like what I had done with the first one. I wanted to do something completely different. I wanted to find out whether... You know, I had the possibility of becoming a writer because one book is one thing. The second book is something very different. So I returned to it with a great deal of trepidation and I just didn't know how I was going to feel about the text. So fear was my overwhelming emotion when I picked it up again. And I was happy that when I went back to it, I, I could understand the reasons that had brought me to write it. And there were probably maybe some bits of the writing that I might have changed, but I didn't. I left it as it was because I figured that's what it was in 1998. And the story was what was central, not the fact that there might be an unwieldy sentence here or there. And I found that the, the, the power of the original story that drew me to write it, I still felt some of its shadows still there. I think I can say that I was proud of having written it. It's a very powerful story and you do an exceptional thing in it. You make us feel a great deal of sympathy for this controlling man. We understand because of that backstory you gave him. Yeah, that was that was a very spooky part of that experience, I have to say. Not altogether pleasant. Um, I could feel myself on his shoulder the entire time and sort of see the world through his eyes. But a very strange thing started to happen during the course of the writing, which I think we'll all be familiar with. Uh, and that was that the, basically he took over at one point. And I know there are other writers who will disagree with this assessment, but he took over and the story went in the direction that he wanted it to go in. And I actually I kind of sat back and looked on in horror. And there were some some pretty bad dreams and some pretty dark days throughout all of that. But I just felt I had to go with that because that was the authentic story. Yeah. And Leah, was this your first novel in Other Alice? It was my first novel, yeah. So what was it like going back to her? An old friend or a wish that you'd done things differently? I think if I was starting to write another Alice now, I would write it very differently. But I didn't feel that much separation from her, actually, because it's been such a deep-rooted part of my writing life, especially, I think, because it was my first novel. And because the response to it at the time was so extraordinary, the number of people who wrote to me, I had been very worried about how the novel would be received. Um, and I was worried about how people would react to it. And I expected the kind of invective and abuse that was flying around the airwaves at the time that I started to write it. Whereas, in fact, none of those things happened. The idea that women who are abused or indeed children who are abused are asking for it. Well, you know, mockery, denial, um, I don't know what I expected specifically, but I just expected trouble. I found it very difficult book to write. It was a very visceral and emotional book to write. Yeah, I just, I think I felt very raw when it came out. 
But in fact, what I realized, what it taught me was, I had so many letters from people who said, it's as if you were there when X or Y happened to me, and thank you for telling my story. And I realized then, which was very important for me to know as a writer, that when you think that you are exposing yourself to most readers, what they find on the page is their own experience and their own interpretation of what you've written. The book that goes out into the world is really a separate thing from you. Were you as disciplined as Catherine and leaving sentences that were perhaps could have been written differently or? Maybe not. <laughs> when I went back to, well, first of all, I have to say I hated the original cover of the novel, which featured uh, a model wearing frosted lipstick. And that always rankled with me because my character would not be seen dead in frosted lipstick. It was it was brilliant to be able to, to choose my own cover. And that is the thing I think that Ireland has to particularly well. They bring out beautiful books and they give writers a say in um, what the covers are going to be. But in terms of the writing, I was actually appalled by some of the really clunky, just in terms of talking about the construction of sentences, things like repetitions. So I did do uh, a superficial edit and I pulled out things like that that just I felt got in the way. But I didn't change anything about the structure of the story or anything that's in the story. It was pure, it was like doing a line edit. So you tidied it. Catherine, let's hear from a name for himself. Do you have a passage you could read for us? I do indeed. Vincent, Vinnie decides that he will teach Grace as a way of her getting a little bit more independence from her father, whom he loathes, that he will teach her how to make the toys. Farrell was amazed at how quickly Grace learned. She said he was a good teacher. But the truth was that her small hands were swift and certain her eye unerringly accurate. She grasped everything he taught her, frowning with concentration while he explained and demonstrated. There was now a permanent little furrow between her eyebrows. Farrell loved looking at it, loved the earnestness which produced it. He could feel her hands almost itching to try everything he showed her. But she was also remarkably patient when her turn came. She measured over and over again, cutting only when she was satisfied, and then with the precision which Farrell had seen only a few times in his career. He was filled with pride, teaching her. For six weeks every evening and all through the weekends, they worked together to meet Grace's Christmas deadlines. Farrell loved the silences that grew between them, the certainty of each other's presence, but sometimes, during those evenings, he experienced an inexplicable sense of loss, a sorrow that sliced deep into his core. It puzzled him. Then suddenly he started to dream. For nights on end, he had vivid technicolor nightmares of running through Fairview, dodging morning buses. Cats fighting outside in the night became his little sister's howl as she clutched her doll, stretching her arms out to her eldest brother. He woke up sweating, the images staying with him into the early hours so that he was afraid to fall asleep again. The pain was at its strongest one evening as he watched Grace put the finishing touches to the last of her three cradles. She had smoothed the oak all over with three coats of beeswax. The cradle gleamed with a dull, soft sheen. 
He watched as she laid the satin quilt she had made in the base of the cradle and tucked the doll in with a lace-edged cotton sheet. She passed her hand over the doll's forehead, straightening the filmy bonnet. That old, old gesture made Farrell's heart turn over. That night he was restless as image after image took possession of the screen inside his brain. He saw his mother during her last illness, her wasted hands plucking restlessly at the covers of her hospital bed. A rosy, bright-eyed girl sat beside him on a bench near a bandstand, her dark hair framing her face. Your heart breaks for this, the little boy that this man was. Was there any particular reason why you made Grace, his wife, a doll maker? Yes, I wanted the dolls just to be a metaphor of the way that he began to regard her almost as a child, as the little sister that he had lost. I think it, it, it actually, afterwards, when I read it years later for this edition, it actually was much creepier than I'd intended it to be at the time. I, I don't think I had realised myself how unhealthy that particular master-teacher relationship was between the two of them. But it was to kind of it, it was the, the the tangible item that wouldn't let him go of his childhood, remembering his little sister Jenny, and that then became in some way something enmeshed very unhealthily between the two of them, that he taught her how to remake his childhood. So the doll speaks to childhood. Leah, your book is partly set in the character's childhood as well, isn't it? Do you have a passage you could read from another Alice? Yes, I have. One of the things that I was trying to do in this novel was to explore the boundaries of consent and perceptions of consent and of how power relations work in families. For example, in the scene that I'm going to read, I was thinking, how many times have you watched a child being tickled and laughing? But how many times have you watched a child being tickled and begging for mercy and not getting it? And what if that is part of a pattern of physical relationships in that household? So in the context of the novel, just before this scene, Alice is the main character. Her daughter, Holly, has been playing with her friend, Jake, who is older than Holly is. Um, Holly is five or six in this scene. They're, they're tussling and it's all in fun. But then Jake ends up spitting on Holly and she is fighting and trying to get him off her. And she's screaming at him and he's laughing. And Alice totally overreacts to this. She goes in, she holds Jake off her, she's shouting at him, and everybody is a little bit stunned. And after they go home and Alice puts Holly to bed, she begins to remember in the sense of putting back together something that was really an integral part of her childhood. It's so easy for him to hold me and he laughs. No matter how hard I squirm and wriggle and try to pull away, I can't do it. I can't get away from him. The more I fight, the funnier he thinks it is. She's laughing too, as if it's all right. It's not all right, not ever. She doesn't hear me. She's right there and she doesn't see. She doesn't know that I'm being blown out like a candle. Daddy's only playing, she says. It's a game. Daddy's only playing. I hate her for watching and not stopping him. His hard fingers digging deep, unfriendly. I see the red armchair in the corner, his chair. He pulls me towards it. 
fingers rush all over me, sly, punishing, tormenting. He's tormenting me. I don't move my feet, but my body drags along behind him. I hate, I hate, if only I could smash and break my way out of here, but I can't. He is cold, hard, flinty, feely, hurting, rock, rock hard, solid, a wall I can't get past. He holds me with his legs and one arm wrapped around me, hard like a chain, leaving one hand free to move around, biting into me, push, poke and prod. My head fogs up. I'm weak, worthless, good-for-nothing, spoilsport. I'm letting it happen to me again. My body is hurting and hates what's happening to it, but no one else can see. She's laughing. I know it's not a game. I try to tell them I need to pee, but they don't listen, and then I wet my pants and everything, the laughter, the fingers, everything, stops so suddenly I fall to the floor. I can see their disgust. I'm disgusting. Dirty, smelly, wet, pathetic, messy little thing. She tells me to go and clean myself up. I'm snivelling as well, wet everywhere, eyes streaming, nose running, mouth wobbling, and now wet down there as well, cooling pee seeping through my clothes, a slimy little piece of dirt, rotting, rotten. She shook all over. Her head felt heavy as if her neck might snap. She leaned over to rest it on the table in front of her. How many ways can you say rage? How many times? How can you show what it feels like? She reached for some paper and her pen and began to scribble furiously as if words could release her. But what came out instead were wild, dark slashes across the page, tearing the paper into shreds. I give up. Words fail me. I'm just wondering how both of you protect yourselves when you take on uncomfortable subject matter. You know, how do you live with it? Catherine mentioned nightmares, for example, because it must just permeate your life for that period. Nightmares are part of it, certainly. Yeah, it's hard. How do you protect yourself? I don't know. I think by surrounding yourself with good friends and with family and by by doing other things by giving yourself some kind of alternative space that you can go to that's safe you've both included fascinating afterwards leah for example in your afterward you write the best way to keep a secret is not to know it can you talk to me about some of the elements you picked up on for the afterward well, I suppose I was reflecting back over the intervening years, really, from the time that Another Alice came out and um, where we are now. And the question, in fact, why now? Why, why bring this book out again? And I think, well, why not now? Because the fundamental nature of experience really hasn't changed that much. But what I was thinking about were all the layers of secrecy and denial that permeated Irish society throughout the 20th century, really, and how all of these stories started coming to the surface in the 90s um, and all the commissions of inquiry and investigation that we've had since then, and how much we have learned about the intense misery of so much of the 20th century, of the experience, not just of women, um, but of children and, and of boys in industrial schools as well. And, and I'm really interested in how we've 
changed and how we're able to see things now and talk about things now in a way that we didn't before. I mean, it's a great opportunity and afterward, some decades after a book. Yeah, I, I, I was very, very interested in this as a concept. Yeah, it's, it, it is tricky, though, because you are a novel is a work of fiction and an afterword is a piece of nonfiction. And yeah, so, so that can be problematic. But it does give you the opportunity, I think, to reflect maybe on in a way that you're not consciously reflecting when you're writing a novel on the issues that surround it and brings you to a new understanding of what you were trying to do and, and what you achieved or maybe what you didn't manage to achieve. One of the things in my afterword is about a story that I heard just last year about uh, a theatre company who give workshops and performances for young people on issues of sexual equality and consent. And they had arranged to do this with a particular school and the school decided to send the boys off to the factory instead of going to this talk. And it, that just struck me as something that lies at the heart of what the really unexpressed problem of the moment is. I think we're asking all the wrong questions. Why ask why a woman stays with an abuser? Why not ask why does the abuser do the things that the abuser does? Why ask why a young woman dressed in a particular way or why she got into a car with a particular group of people? So we're asking all the wrong questions and we're looking in all the wrong directions. Catherine, what about your afterward? What was your intention with it? Well, I think the intention is that when we look over the last 25 to 30 years, I think the pace of change in this country has been absolutely extraordinary. All sorts of things, all sorts of walls of silence have been broken. All kinds of subjects that we never dared to speak about before, perhaps because we didn't even, we weren't even aware that things were going on in the background. I mean, we were, we were a very silent country uh, in so many ways. Silent, and, and that kind of silence builds the sort of shame that, that Leo was talking about earlier. The level in which, or the ways in which, we are now able to confront some very uncomfortable realities that we weren't able to confront before, that is a really positive change. And I wanted to reflect that, but I also wanted to look at the fact that so many things that still need to change haven't changed. And one of the things which didn't actually come into the afterward because it happened a little bit later, I remember listening to um, a radio report about an, an, an Irish soldier or ex-soldier who had been um, sentenced for something like 12 rapes on 11 separate occasions with the same woman. And she spent five days in the witness stand, you know, giving an account of herself as a so-called witness, but essentially, you know, having her life and herself pulled apart and that to me is that's one of the one of the, the hangovers, if you like, one of the legacies of the past that has not changed and absolutely needs to change. And it was when I was doing the research for the afterward, you don't get the opportunity all too often to pull together statistics which kind of clarify things for you. You know, when I learned then from say 1996 to 2022, that 244 women have died violently in this state, the vast majority of them at the hands of an intimate partner. And yes, we are beginning to have a more open conversation about this, but it still, it has not begun to change. So I think the afterward 
in both cases gives us the opportunity to reflect on the changes that have happened, but also to underline the things that still need to change in the society. So the afterward gives you the opportunity to look back on the distance of when you were writing and in many ways writing from instinct, you know, about things that you observe that you mightn't have had the factual basis for. And this is where I come back again to that really strange phenomenon that fiction actually unearths truths and truths sometimes that we're not even aware of knowing, but we've just observed things around us and we start putting things together. So the afterward then gives you the opportunity to go back and look at the, the factual structure, if you like, of, of the society in which all of those things took place. So yes, we can pat ourselves on the back for all sorts of things, uh, but there's a hell of a lot here that, that still needs to change and still needs to be tackled. A lot done more to do. Now, spoiler alert, you're both friends. Uh, yeah. you're, you're familiar with one another's work. Leah, yeah. do you have a favorite book of Catherine's? And Catherine, I'll put the same question to you. Leah first. This is so hard because um, <laughs> it's really hard because I have a number of favorite books. And one of the things that I really love about Catherine's work is that she doesn't stay in Ireland. She takes it outside. Missing Julia is partly set in India, for example. And I think the years that followed maybe is going to edge it as my favorite because parts of it are set in, set in Spain, parts of it are set in Cyprus. She's used the outline of a Greek myth as the basis for the story that she's written, which is a completely modern story of seduction and revenge. I just think that's a really clever thing to have done. Catherine? Okay, thank you for that, Leah. Well, I, I think I said to you recently, Martina, that um, rereading Another Alice after 25 years just blew me away in the same way it had done first time round. I, I think it, it, in fact, almost seemed to have increased in power over the 25 years, and I think it is an exceptional novel. And then I'm going to choose Leah's nonfiction book, In Your Face, which I think was an incredibly brave exploration of illness and recovery. And that's still a book that I will press into people's hands. It was unique. I don't think I'd ever read anything like it before. And of course, it's, much, it's about much more than illness and recovery. It's reflections on everything, on life, on relationships, on love, on mortality, on kindness. It's just all of human life is in that book. And I can't recommend it highly enough. You kept a diary, oh. didn't you, Leah? I did. I kept a diary um, while I was in hospital and it ended up evolving into this, as it happened, account of everything that happened to me, but also life in the hospital. And at the time, the HSE was in particular crisis. So it seemed to me it was the story of Ireland at that particular moment. In Your Face is a memoir of being diagnosed with and treated for oral cancer. And, and a metaphor for Ireland at the time, in the sense that... Well, it was an aspect of the Irish experience at the time, um, because, well, I mean, for years and years, we've had stories of patients on trolleys for 72 hours and uh, the disaster that is various A&E departments and patient waiting lists. But then when you actually breach the walls and get into the hospital system, what it's like to be in there and see everything unfolding all around you. Yeah, and we were there in real time with you. Can I ask, have you collaborated on work together? We've done kind of contemporaneous work. We both contributed essays to a book called Yes, We Still Drink Coffee that was published by Frontline Defenders and Fighting Words, where 
each of us interviewed a human rights defender in another country and, and wrote that person's story. We worked together for Irish Pen. So Leah, you're the chair and Catherine is the secretary, is that right? That's right. Yeah. We have, we've collaborated in putting on events to highlight the work of uh, writers who are imprisoned or in danger in their own countries because of the work that they do. Um, we're, we're members of a writing group, which Catherine has more right to talk about, actually, because she's been a member longer than me. I'm only a blow-in. I've only been in it for 22 years. Oh, Catherine, <laughs> how long have you been a member of this writing group? Good Lord, I think, I think somebody uh, called it recently probably the, the, the longest-running writing group in this country. Gosh, probably, I don't know, maybe 30 years. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, terrific, um, it's a terrific group of both friends and writers. There's a, there's a lovely social aspect to it as well. Particularly during lockdowns and the last couple of difficult years that we've had, you know, I think Leah spoke earlier about surrounding yourself with, with friendship when you're working on dark material. And it's just, it really is incredibly important. And, and I think those two and a half years or two years, whatever it was, it was so necessary to have that wider network of people that you didn't even have to explain anything to. You know, everybody gets what it is to be immersed in something that's difficult or challenging. And the workshops went ahead on Zoom and it was it was a great point of contact and a, and a great sort of social support as well. So have the two of you been reading aloud extracts of work in progress to each other over those decades as members of this writer's group? Yeah, that's how it works. Yeah. And, you know, it's really useful to get that kind of critical feedback at a stage where you might be terrified to show the work to anybody else. But this is a completely safe space where you can bring something as rough and ready as you like, you know, very, very much first draft and it will get, you know, a very attentive ear and always some really useful comments. So it's a it's a very, very interesting process. It can untie some very knotty problems right at the very beginning, uh, which is always a very useful thing to do. You must trust each other. Yeah, completely. Mm. Talk, talk to us about your own reading. What's the book on your bedside tables right now? Leah? Well, I am reading two things right now. I'm reading a book by a writer called Amitav Ghosh called The Nutmeg's Curse, Parables for a Planet in Crisis. I don't know if you've heard about it. No. Um, it's about, it starts with the spice wars and it's about colonization, really processes of colonization and geopolitics. And it's a historical perspective on the climate crisis and other crises that the planet is experiencing now. So it's not an easy read. I have to read it in stages and try and retain what I'm reading. But it's really, really fascinating. And I think it's a very important book. And so to balance that, recently, Ivan Boland was posthumously awarded the Irish Pen Award for Outstanding Contribution to Irish Literature. So I have been rereading her poetry. So I have her poetry books dotted around the house or my desk or at the kitchen table. And they are also beside my bed. And you were talking earlier about protecting yourself in some way. And um, I think reading is actually a primary protection and you can have your particular guardians that you keep close to you and you can go to to take you out of whatever psychological hole you're in. Catherine, what have you got on the bedside table? Well, I mean, there are books everywhere. There's upstairs books and downstairs books and there's <laughs> books everywhere. But three that I have been making my way through recently, or I've recently finished 
Trespasses by Louise Kennedy. Oh yeah, which is brilliant. A terrific novel. I highly recommend it. It's it's just wonderful. Trespasses is just it's just brilliant. I mean, it's the whole it's it's you know the the whole society that she's looking at with a fantastically compelling love story, just beautifully written. I couldn't wait to get back to it. One of those books that just draws you back in page after page. And then I like to have short stories as my guardians from time to time as well, just to dip into something very quickly. And Blank Pages by Bernard McLaverty has been my go-to over the last while. Uh, I've, I've had it for a while, but I just dip in every so often. It's just, they're, they're just little gems, every one of them. And then for my nonfiction, I have Burning Questions by Margaret Atwood. And I mean, the, the title sounds very uh, ominous, but in fact, she is such, she's such a mischievous writer. Uh, her sense of humour is terrific and she's very acerbic and her asides are always worth reading. And she makes me laugh out loud, even though she's dealing with, you know, in this book, topics as diverse as bird watching or Donald Trump or what it means to write science fiction or speculative fiction. She just ranges all over the place. And again, quite short essays, but all of them just completely compelling sized pieces of work. Well, some great recommendations there. We're out of time now, unfortunately. That's all for now from me, Martina Devlin, and the City of Books podcast. A reminder that you've been listening to Leah Mills talk about her novel, Another Alice, and Catherine Dunn discuss her book, A Name for Himself, both published by Arlen House as part of its classic literature series. Well done, Arlen House. City of Books comes to your courtesy of the Dublin UNESCO City of Literature with additional support from Molly, the Museum of Literature Ireland. The signature tune was composed especially for us by Dara Dukes. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please subscribe. It's free and leave a review. We'll talk again next month. Meanwhile, remember our motto, keep your reading lightly.